This is exactly right. For so many years, I just always felt I was explaining myself or apologizing for myself or, well, you know, my books did this, but then I did, the, you know, I'm always feeling like I had to excuse things. And now I'm just like, well, you know what? This is how it happened. This is who I am. And you feel a sense of freedom in that. You're not apologizing anymore. It's just, this is my life and this is how it happened. And this is my story. Welcome to the Parent Footprint Podcast with Dr. Dan. I am Dr. Dan, your host, and let me tell you about our mission at Parent Footprint. It is to make the world a more loving and compassionate place, one parent and one child at a time. At Parent Footprint, we believe the key to raising happy, healthy, and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives, happiness, health, and engagement. We believe that awareness is the foundation for your vision of successful parenting. And with increased awareness and intention, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint on your children. Today's show is called Separation Anxiety, which is the title of our guest's latest book. And let me tell you about our guest, Laura Zygman. She's the author of Animal Husbandry, which was made into a movie, Someone Like You, with Hugh Jackman and Ashley Judd, Dating Big Bird, Piece of Work, and Her. She's been a contributor to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Huffington Post, and she's produced a popular online series of animated videos called Annoying Conversations. Laura was also the recipient of the Yadu Residency. She lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts with her husband son, and deeply human Sheltie. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dan. Glad to be here. As I was saying right before we started, is in, re- in reading your pieces and your writing, something that just struck us at Parent Footprint on the podcast is how real, authentic, and how aware you are and honest in how you put out to the world in a transparent way about what you've learned in life, your struggles, and how it's made you who you are today. I'm glad to hear you say that. I mean, I I try to do that, and I feel really strongly that we're so formed by our parents, for good or bad, Mm -hmm. that um, I've always felt really like I was such a product of my family. And I've tried to understand um, that and and move forward with it with, as you say, with intention and and a sense of honesty, especially if I'm writing about it. Um, yeah, my, yeah. Well, I'd say, and that honesty is inspiring to all of us who read um, these stories because, again, if someone can put themselves out there and be vulnerable and courageous in the way you do in your writing, it tells us that, hey, hey, we can, we can do this too. It, it's, it's okay. Right. Right. I was recently asked to write a piece um, for the New York Times, their parenting section, which I'm sure you're, you're, you and your listeners are familiar with. And it was, they have a different topic every week. And the particular topic they asked me to write about was how being part of the sandwich generation and taking care of my parents when they were ill and having, and being a parent at the same time affected 
me financially. And it was, it was a difficult piece to write because no one really wants to, you know, admit Mm -hmm. how crushed they can be financially. Um, you always try to put kind of a good face on things. And it was, it was hard. It was hard. Mm -hmm. It was a very hard time in my life. And it was, it was, um, once I kind of decided I was going to write the piece, I, I, I I thought it was really important because I think so much shame is involved when we're not honest and other people are struggling too. And mm-hmm. lots of people are having trouble and making ends meet, especially if they're caretaking, you know, two different generations. And um, there's no shame in that. And the more, mm-hmm. I think the more we're really straightforward about it, the, the easier mm-hmm. it gets just to talk about it. Yeah. Well, and let's, let's just go with that because that is on my list of uh, things to talk about with you is the sandwich generation. And there are so many people living in this torn, I don't know, torn reality might not be the best way to say it, but pulled in two places from caring for your loving children and then caring for your parents at the same time and what it does emotionally, financially, physically. Yeah, it's a really hard. There's so many people doing it. I that time for me came about ten years ago. So my son was around eight and eight or nine when it started. My mother got sick first, and then a few years later, my my father got ill. Both had very quick cancers, and so it was a short time frame for each of them, which was hard in a certain way and probably easier in other ways. I've had many friends who are caretaking their parents for over a decade, well over a decade if they have Alzheimer's and that kind of thing, like really long-term situations, which are just so hard on a family. And so for me, I had sort of the, you know, I'm putting air quotes around this, the best case scenario in terms of the fact that I was, I didn't have a day job. I worked for myself. I was a writer. So I was flexible in being able to pick up my son and take my mother to her appointments or my father to his appointments. Um, but after a few years of doing that, you know, my, I realized I had been really, um, I had been working a lot less. I had not had time to focus on my career during those years. And it was a really big setback. I'm still climbing out of the hole. But mm-hmm. at least I was able to be present for them and as much for my son too. And I, so many people who have really active careers who are, you know, have to be in their offices. Um, I don't know how they do it. You know, it's really, really Mm -hmm. hard. hard. Were you aware of the financial setbacks that were, I'm sure, like mounting over time versus like, did you make a conscious effort to say, I'm going to focus on my relationships and being there for my parents and for my child and put business on hold? Or did it just sort of happen? A little bit of both. I mean, for me, I had I had been lucky to have earned some money early in my career, and I had saved. I had you know put it put it away. And once my mother's diagnosis came, you know it was pancreatic cancer, so it's just very shocking. It's very fast. It comes out of nowhere. I mean, one one day someone's kind of normal, and the next day you get this devastating news. And so for me, it was just like you just you just start moving. You know. You're getting second opinions. You're going online to educate yourself. You're trying to become an expert in every in all the cancer things. You know, you're you're trying to kind of get the pain to everything, and so you stop thinking because there's just no time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just um, launched into that into that sort of crisis mode, and just didn't really think about it. And then when she passed away, I kind of had a little bit of a lull. 
to get back to my work. But then about, you know, two years later, my father got sick. So it was like the same thing, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, and you just do your best. You just do your best. And, Mm -hmm. and like I said, luckily I had some savings, but I mean, you know, it, it did create a bigger hole. How did you manage this? I'm imagining just being there as a parent. How did you talk this through and be there for your son while also explaining what's going on? I mean, I imagine like giving information, but maybe not too much information, wanting him to feel safe and secure yeah. while you're dealing with all the anxieties and pending loss of your parents. Yeah. That's a really good question. And it's one that I think came into high relief when my mother went into hospice. My son was almost nine. Um, not quite nine. He was eight and a half. And he was the kind of kid that always felt like an old soul. You know, people just mm-hmm. loved him and he was funny and he was just really kind of deep. And before we knew it was happening, we were moving her into hospice and, and there he was right with us. You know, it was kind of, I definitely, my husband and I both kind of made the conscious decision after thinking like, should we allow him here? Is it going to be bad for him to see this? Um, and he really wanted to be there, my son. He really wanted to be part of it. He was very close to my parents and um, he was young enough that he just w- was there, like he was all in for it. And we allowed that um, up until just right right at the end, you know, which we thought was not right for him to be there. But, but I think, uh, you know, every child is different. Every family is different. So it's not easy to say what's right for one is right for another. But for us and for, for my son, for who he was, it was the right decision, I think. And then a couple of years later when my father got sick, you know, he was... 12 by then Mm -hmm. and it you know my father went into kind of an assisted living thing he had a brain he had brain cancer Mm. and that was really hard because they had been so close and so by then it was much more painful for my son because he really understood what was happening and he was so close to my father that it became much harder it was a much harder um equally quick trajectory you know six months but it was very hard and we just let him kind of if he wanted to come visit, he did. And if he wasn't able to handle it, we never forced him. And, and he did like show up most of the time, but um, you just have to take it really one day at a time um, and just let your, almost let your kid kind of like, like listen to them. You know, if they don't want to go, you can't really force them. And if they mm-hmm. do want to go, you sh- I think it's a good idea to really consider letting them go. Mm-hmm. You know, you do mm-hmm. have to step in if you think, if you do think something is just, you know, too much. That's obviously a smart parental decision to make because, you know, clearly kids can't make all of their decisions on their own. But for us, you know, right up until the end with my mother, we, we just let him be there. And I mm-hmm. think it's just the right thing. Mm-hmm. And particularly with our adolescents and those that are particularly of the old soul type, um, yeah. we really do need to listen to what they feel comfortable with. And even though we are there to guide, my experience is we don't always know best, particularly when they're that old, you know, and we really do need to pay attention to their signals. Um, Yes. Not easy. Not easy. Mm -hmm. No, no. So we're, um, I'm figuring now that we're going about it this way, I want to work our way up to your new book, yeah. Separation Anxiety, yeah, yeah. and hit another piece that you wrote, which um, completely relates to our parenting journey um, and being aware on our parenting journey. And that's the whole idea that, um, you know, the, the difference between firsts and lasts, right? 
So your yeah. piece, you know, firsts are special. So why are we focusing on the lasts? Tell us about that one. Yeah, it was really interesting. I, um, you know, I've written a lot about loss really lately. And when I was a young mother, we moved back to where I grew up. It was kind of an accident. I grew up outside Boston in a suburb. Mm-hmm. And I had lived in New York and D.C. And, and when I met my husband and we had our son, we ended up moving to my hometown, which was Newton, Massachusetts. And I ended up becoming friends with another young mother who had had a tremendous amount of loss early in her life. She had lost her father when um, she was still in high school. And then she lost her mother right as she was graduating college. So she was having her children and her parents were already gone. Um, And it was a very different feeling. You know, my parents were around visiting me and doting on their grandson my son, and um, she didn't have parents. And so she always had a darker, sadder um, sense about her, about things. But I just will never forget when she said that. She had said to me that, you know, something she had noticed was that people always focus on the first, but they never focus on the last time your kid rides a, you know, a two-wheeler, you know, or the last time your kid sits on your lap or, or hugs you like that. And that always stuck with me because it was such a sad um, but true mm-hmm. thought that I had never, and, and I often thought of that as my son was growing up. I was like, wow, this is the last time. Mm-hmm. I wonder if this is the last time he's going to hold my hand crossing the street. And those are such poignant oh, yes. memories. Even if you don't remember the exact one, you can remember the time when it sort of shifted. And it's life, and we all process those things, you know, as ways that a healthy child is growing up and differentiating themselves and all that in the ways that they should. But as a parent, you know, it's just crushing on those levels. And so a lot of that is in is in the novel. The main character is sort of dealing with a lot of different kinds of loss, including her son becoming a teenager, and there's just a particular kind of sadness associated with that, mm-hmm. even if it's a healthy thing. Yeah, right, and. um I w- knowing that we were talking about this, I was reflecting on, um, I guess it was Saturday, our youngest was taking her driver's license test on Monday. And as I was driving her to work, I was very, very aware with both um, happiness and sadness that this was very likely the last time that um, she will need me to drive her anywhere. Oh, wow. And that... Uh, and I yes. and I was gonna say something to her because I'm usually that guy who is very aware of this stuff. To you know, sometimes it's helpful and sometimes it's not all that helpful. And I usually say, "Hey, this <laughs> is the last time." And I'm like, "No, be aware, Dan. She has her driving test in two days. She has to drive a long distance, even get to the driving test. Do not increase her anxiety about passing a test by you commenting. This is the very last time you're gonna do this together." So I kind of kept it to myself. So funny. And. Um, but yeah, whether it's reading stories, holding hands, them sleeping in our bed, you know, there there is there is that last time, and uh, we're a con- we're country fan, uh, music fan family, and there is a great song called "The Last Time" for everything that some of our listeners might be aware of, oh, wow. and uh, it goes through wow. every last time. So I think you're totally like you're onto something big, and and in thinking about awareness, what what do you recommend? to our listeners in thinking about this concept of not just first, but lasts? Well, I think it's what you just said a, a minute or two ago, which is that when you were sitting in the car having that thought about your daughter, you realized you were having a sort of a happy thought and a sad thought at the same time. And I think that that sounds so simple, but for most of us, 
we feel so binary. We have to, it can only be happy. We have to be happy. There's this Mm -hmm. pressure in society. We have to be happy and we have to face everything with positivity. And we're never allowed to have that second thought, which is like, you know, there's loss and there's sadness with everything. And most things have both. Mm -hmm. You know, most things are complicated and we're not usually given the opportunity to process both feelings either simultaneously or one after the other. It's sort of like if somebody died, you have to get, you have to move past it. You have to be positive. You have to, you have to say things like things happen for the best and you have to think positively. I mean, you're not allowed to just Mm -hmm. kind of have Mm -hmm. your feelings. And I think that that is really, to me, the key in any of this is just to be allowed to allow yourself to have that range of feelings. And, and, and that, extends down to your kids, which is like the most important thing I think for them is to be, to allow them to have their feelings, whatever their feelings are. And I grew up in, I think we're probably, I'm probably a little older than you, but I grew up in the sixties and early seventies when, you know, parents kind of ruled the roost and you kids weren't really listened to. It just was the way it was. And Mm -hmm. your opinions didn't matter. No one asked you what you thought. You didn't get to decide where you were going on vacation or where you were going to eat. You know, mm-hmm. first of all, we never went out, but yeah. I mean, just, you didn't really have a voice. Yeah. And yeah. so now, you know, some people think kids have too much of a voice or whatever, but the bigger, the bigger concern is that kids have, you know, a right to their feelings. And if they're sad or if they're happy or if they're nervous, you know, we need to like give them space to have those feelings. That's what I think is the most important. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're making me think of um, Dr. Mark. Uh, bracket out of Yale has this new book that many people have heard of called Permission to Feel. And it's, you just, right, you just said exactly what this amazing book is, which is like, we just have to give that permission that it's okay to feel. And um, that seems so simple. It does. No, it's not because our own emotions get tangled up in our kids' feelings. If we get upset when they're upset, um, we have good intentions, but we don't want them to feel upset. So we want everything to be okay. But then we're basically telling them they can't be upset. It's not okay. Right. Mm. Right. So it's a fine line between letting them have their feelings, lis- really listening to them, identify, you know, validating. I used to feel that way. I know exactly what you're talking about. And also giving them hope to move forward, you know, to not be completely, um, you know, paralyzed mm-hmm. by their feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And I'm just going to add one more thing about Dr. Brackett because I just heard a, a, a video on him. And this is for hope because you just re- made me think about this too for everyone. And he talks about how he had lots of challenges due to his upbringing and just his stuff um, as an adolescent and lots of different struggles and lots of different labels. And he said, if someone would have put, you know, kind of, hey, as of right now, this determines who you're going to be later, he said, Oh my gosh, he said no one would, he could have never imagined that he would be able to become who he became because life is a process and there's growth. And if we just look at one moment in time, we're doing ourselves a disservice and we need to have faith in that process, which is so, it makes me think of your journey with how much you have been through and then leading to your like decade of writer block, you know, like your, we talk about like your decades of like, I'm frozen or I'm stuck. And then all of a sudden through all of your growth, all of a sudden there's a new rebirth. Right. That's such an important point. And I think it's a brilliant point 
for anyone who is trying to do anything in their life, whether it's a kid in high school trying to imagine their future, especially in this day and age, which is just so stressful and mm-hmm. filled with just, you know, it's horrible right now to mm-hmm. be young or to be anybody. It's just a very stressful time. So, and, and that's one of the things that you have to imagine that it's just, it's not going to stay static like this. Things do change. You do change. And that's what's so hard to remember when you're stuck. And when I was stuck for that decade, my last book was published in 2006. And, you know, it's been four, 14 years since I had a book out. And I really it took me at least a decade to start writing after mm. 2006. I mean, mm. I did little things here and there. And that's what helped me eventually start again because um, I took these little baby steps along the way. Um, but, but even at the time that I was taking those baby steps, I didn't really know that they were going to work. And sometimes they didn't. I used to make these little videos on this online platform named Extra Normal. And you could script these animated characters. We write a script in 10 minutes and and then you would post it. And these characters would be like reading. And I, I made 75 of them and I people loved them and I loved making them. And it was a great way for me to write without really writing. And um, and yet I still felt like a failure because I couldn't monetize them. I couldn't figure out what to do with them. Mm-hmm. So I kind of was like, oh, I did that, but didn't work, you know. And then a few years later, I, I wrote a script, a film script. And it did, you know, people really loved it, but it didn't sell, which is like what normally happens when you write a script. And again, <laughs> I kind of felt like a failure. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, I wrote the script and nothing happened. And yet... Eventually, when I finally was able to sit down and start to write a novel, I ended up using little pieces of those videos and little parts of that script mm. to seed the novel. And it was at that point that I realized, oh, nothing's wasted. See, what I was doing all along was taking these baby steps. But in the moment, I still didn't, you know, I still didn't have the faith that anything good would come of it. So it is, you forget that life is moving constantly and, and it is a process. It's such a good way of describing it. So how then, keep, keep us uh, stepping along on your road here, how did all of these things then all of a sudden, what made you realize, whoa, I have a new novel? That's a really good question. It, it took, you know, anyone who writes or anyone who does anything creative knows that it's um you know there's so many moments along the way to get discouraged and and the hardest part besides the actual writing which is really hard is not getting discouraged there's so many moments where you just think like i don't i have an idea but it's not very good or i have 50 pages but i need 200 more like there's so many moments where you're just like i can't do it i can't do it i can't do it and so it took you know i started it in 2015 i had really good friends um, who encouraged me for years to try again, try again. And at a certain point, I really miss writing, you know, because, you know, we sometimes we avoid the thing we love most mm-hmm. because we've, I, you know, for me, I sort of feel like I failed at it. My books weren't selling that well. You know, I felt like kind of a failure. I had some shame attached to it because, you know, it's sort of public when you are a writer. Um, and so I finally went back to it and I went back to it in a really quiet way. I rented a psychiatrist's office by the hour in Harvard Square. I live in Harvard Square and I wanted some time to kind of dedicate to my own writing. I was ghostwriting for other people at that time. Mm-hmm. And so I looked on Craigslist and I found out you could rent shrinks offices by the hour. And so I committed to just a couple months of spending on you know, some office space, which was nice. just like on a Monday when the shrink wasn't there. And I would go there and 
sometimes I would write and sometimes I'd play games on my phone. It depended. <laughs> and um, eventually I got some pages together. Mm-hmm. And I guess it was after I had probably, you know, 50 or 60 pages and I was posting on Instagram saying, you know, hashtag am writing. Mm-hmm. It was, that felt like I was back in the game, but it was still so long after that before I felt like I had anything. I, I gave up on it a couple of times. I tried writing a memoir that didn't work. So I kind of went back and forth until finally I just somehow got it going. And then I could not be stopped once I, once I hit a certain point, I knew I was going to finish and I had no idea if anything good would happen after that, but I knew I would at least yeah. get to the end of it. Would you say you got into that state? We, uh, if those of us who are lucky enough to feel every once in a while, that flow state, did you hit that? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And when you hit that flow state, it's so, it's, it's what it's, you finally remember why you're writing it. You're not writing it to sell a book. You're not writing it to be interviewed. You're not writing it for any of those commercial reasons of commerce. You know, you're writing it because you love to write and you have a story to tell. And when I finally hit that flow, feeling a flow, mm-hmm. you know, I was just so happy writing the story because I felt it came out of so much of my experience. I mean, obviously when you're writing fiction, you know, some people create completely new worlds. I always draw from my own world as a departure point. So obviously I, you know, I had a kid in a Montessori school. I had lost my parents, like the main character. My career was in the dumps as the main characters was. And you know, their marriage was challenged as mine, as so many people's marriages are challenged mm-hmm. at different points. And so those are all points of departure that I, I moved forward from. And I just had such a great time once I hit my stride. Nice. It was great. Nice. Yeah. So tell okay. everyone, tell everyone about set the stage. You just started to, but set the stage for separation anxiety and what this yeah. book is about and represents. So, so um, separation anxiety is, is sort of about a couple who can't afford to get divorced. So they they stay living together, and they lie to their thirteen year old son that you know Gary is sleeping in the guest room because he snores, but really they're separated. And um, it's really also about Judy, who is also struggling with her um, loss. She's lost her parents. Um, she's lost her career. She had been a very successful children's book author who had a PBS animated series that was based on one of her books. Um, So her career is kind of gone and she has been very close to her son and he's now a teenager and she feels very um, cut off from him, even though she drives him to school every day and he's sitting right next to her. She feels very sad that he doesn't really talk the way, you know, teenagers kind of stop talking at that age. And so one day she goes down to the basement to declutter, um, using that Marie Kondo book and, and she, she starts to go through her son's old stuff and she finds a baby sling um, and she puts it around her neck and it hangs down her stomach. And she just looks down and she sort of feels this urge to put something in the old baby sling. And she ends up going upstairs trying to figure out what to, what to put in there. And then she sees the dog <laughs> and she thinks, Oh, the dog. <laughs> and she puts the dog in and she instantly feels comforted she feels like a sense of real uh, comfort from that. You know, she's so lonely and she's so sad. And suddenly having this dog, the weight of the dog, the warmth of the dog is like a therapy animal for her. And she looks ridiculous and she embarrasses her son because she walks around with it. 
And yet she really doesn't care. She's so sort of out there with her grief and her um, loneliness that she's, she's like, yeah, I know I look ridiculous, but I'm still wearing the dog. And um, it goes from there. Yeah. Hmm. And you said that the novel starts in that still point of sadness, that moment when everything goes dark and you have to figure out how you're going to reinvent yourself, not because you want to, but because you have to. Yeah. That's really what I felt like I was facing in my life. I had had all these different careers. I had worked in publishing for 10 years before I wrote my own novels. Then I wrote my novels and I had had a level of success that people assume just will last and last. You know, I had a movie made of one of my books. I had four novels published. Everyone thinks like, oh, once you achieve that, it's a state, it's a permanent state of being. And we all should know by now that success is not a permanent state. Neither is failure. Um, and, and how we define those terms really is, is relative also. But so I'd had these careers. I had a lot of loss and I really wanted to write about what that felt like, even at the risk of writing something that might be, you know, grim. Mm-hmm. Because some people don't want to read about that stuff. They've either experienced it in their lives or, and they don't want to read about it. I mean, you have to entertain people also when they're reading a book. And so, but I felt it was really important. I didn't want to sugarcoat this phase of life because I feel like there's so much emotion in it mm-hmm. and so much beauty in it, even with all the, the pain. And so when I was going through those really, really difficult years you know, taking care of my parents or just dealing with a lot of loss in my own career, I sort of felt adrift. And I didn't know, you know, I've, I felt sad that I'd had this career as a creative person. It was just gone. It just mm-hmm. felt like my life was really bifurcated. There was like the before and the after. Mm-hmm. And I think so many people have that. And why can't we talk about it? Like there's all the shame attached. There was a mm-hmm. lot of shame for me mm-hmm. that I'd had this career and people would be like, they'd see me after a few years. They'd go, geez, what happened to you? You know? Mm-hmm. And even though most people don't mean it, you know, you feel ashamed. You're like, mm-hmm. what, what did happen? I don't know. You know, I guess I failed. And so there's all this shame that we all deal with in terms of, you know, if our careers go off the rails or if we don't make the money we used to make. And, um, I guess I just wanted to write about that because mm-hmm. I, I was sort of tired of feeling ashamed. Mm-hmm. Just what happened, you know, and you can come back from it. Or, and sometimes, you know, you can't, but you still have to, you know, you have to accept it. And, and I'm, I'm just so glad you brought up shame because that is such a huge, yeah. it's such a huge topic and it's a word that we use all the time. And it's, it's so powerful. We know from, um, brain-based child literature, brain-based parenting, that shame is one of the most harmful emotions that we can um, give, so to speak, to our kids in, the, in, in regards to how we parent them. Like shaming someone really gets to the core. It, it affects our self-esteem, it affects our self-worth, it affects our confidence, and yet, and, and we carry it as you're pointing out, normally, like into adulthood, if our business isn't going well, if we make a mistake. And so what have you learned about shame through all this? Yeah, that's such a great question. I mean, I've learned that shame, like you just said, is so pervasive. We we get it when we're children. You see it when you're parenting your own kids. You see yourself doing it to them, even if you think you're evolved. You see other parents doing it. You see it just Every day, people are shaming other people. It's almost just like, 
a form of social discourse. It's just so painful to see. And most people don't really even intend to do it to other people, but it's still shaming. You know, someone will make a joke about someone's weight or they'll make a joke about something and they think they're being funny, but they're not. And it's just, it's such a painful, you know, you'll see people just cringe and wither from a comment. And, and it's like, a lot of it's misplaced humor and a lot of it is just people don't like themselves and they put it on other people. And there's, so there's just like a shame bath, you know, when you leave the house. And I guess for me, it was like, I just was really tired of, I mean, one of the examples I have that I thought was the funniest example of somebody once trying to shame me was when the movie version of my novel came out, which of course, like, you know, the movie came out, it wasn't, it was kind of a goofy movie. It was out for like two weeks and people would say to me, hey, how'd your movie do? <laughs> and I'd be like, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't believe like they were trying to shame me. Right. And I, I was just like, how could you possibly think that I would be embarrassed or ashamed that my movie was, you know, not wasn't reviewed so well or that it was only out for two weeks? Like, why would I be embarrassed? Like, and so I just instantly had, it was the one time I had a comeback. And I just looked, would look at the person who said it, because a lot of people said it to me, and I would just say, how did your movie do? <laughs> I couldn't believe. If I, like, my movie did great. It came out. Yeah, I don't exactly. care if it was out for a minute. Like, I, <laughs> but I couldn't believe that they thought like I would be ashamed, yeah. or that I should be ashamed, or that I was like, what planet? But we live on the shame planet. So, yeah, right. they were shaming me for that. Right. And so I, you know, on a, just on a much larger scale, you know, there is a lot of shame when you're a writer. I mean, even the other night, you know, there's such a, a, you know, a very small turnout for an event I was at with two other writers and the shame, it was like one of us felt shame, the other felt shame, the third felt shame. And it's like the coronavirus, no one is showing up. You know what I mean? Right. But we right. still, we were in this bookstore and like two people were there and we were just bathing in shame. Mm-hmm. Right. And, it, you know, of course, like within a few minutes, it didn't matter. The two people that came were great. We had a good time. But it's that instant sense of like, I'm a loser. I'm totally. here. I have a book. And and so you just have to fight against it. You know, you have to fight against that feeling of self-loathing. And it's, it's unfortunately, it's just, it takes a lot of energy that could be used for other things. Totally. And um, I yes, to fight. We all have to fight against it. And don't just absorb what these other messages are, right? I like how you just kind of said, put it right back at them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you also, um, a theme going through your writing is also middle age um, and this period of life that uh, I relate to as well. I am, um, you alluded to age. I came into the world in 1970, so I'm a few months away from that big 50. And it is just a yeah. trip, right? It's just a trip because part of me can't believe I am as old as I am. And there's the loss of that. But there's the excitement of living with more wisdom and awareness and really working on trying to be purposeful in life that you just is hard to do when you are younger. Like you just haven't had that development. So it's this it's this really interesting time. It is. And I, you know, I am a little older than you, so I'm turning fifty-eight this summer. Um, we age inflate in my family. I'm actually 57 at the moment. There you go. Um, there you go. But I agree with you. I think, you know, especially for women, you know, there's this pressure to be young and look young and act young. And there's a real freedom in being 
you know, a certain age where even at 50, I still felt a lot younger than I do now. I feel much older now, but there's a, there's a freedom in that too. It's sort of like you bounce back, I think more quickly, you know, from things in terms of just feeling like, no, this is who I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is what you're getting right now. And I'm not going to apologize. And I think that's part of why I really liked the character of Judy that, um, you know, she's 50 and when people make fun of her for wearing the dog, she really doesn't care. She's like, well, I'm wearing the dog. I'm wearing a dog. Me. Yeah. And I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry if you don't like it, but I can't leave the house without it. So, you know, you're just going to have to deal. And I love that because for so many years, I think, you know, for me, I just always felt, you know, like I was explaining myself or apologizing for myself or, well, you know, my books did this, but then I did, the, you know, I'm always feeling like I had to excuse things. And now I'm just like, well, you know what? This is how it happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is who I am. And you feel a sense of freedom in that. Um, you're not apologizing anymore. You're just kind of feeling like this is my life and mm-hmm. this is how it happened and this is my story and that's it, you know? And I, I like that. Do you, so do you think for you that there was a defining moment like the comment back about the movie or it, it, like that you just sort of stepped into yourself and it felt good and you said, you know what, screw it, this is me? Or is it this, you know, this slow comp- compilation of events over time? I think it's both. Like I remember after my fourth novel came out, uh, you know, I got a call from my agent at the time who said, you know, that maybe I should stop writing fiction for a while. And I f- had sort of forgotten that phone call because I often feel, um, you know, like everything's my fault and I should take responsibility for everything that happens to me. And so I thought, well, my career went under and it's my fault. I mean, ultimately, I'm responsible for whether or not I write. And and so I kind of completely forgot that someone who was, you know, sort of my person who was supposed to be encouraging me had basically told me to stop writing Mm -hmm. because the sales were so bad. And when I look back to that phone call, it, it cut really deeply and it really shut me down in a way that it may not have shut other people down, but because of how I'm wired, I really internalized that message. I mean, I just stopped writing and then life took over, you know, mm-hmm. all the stuff that happened in my life took over, which just made that continue for over a decade. But, you know, I think the light went back on when I got to be friendly with a bunch of writers in, in Cambridge. They were all, you know, older than I was and they were just after me, like start again, like just try. And I had a lot of friends who I, you know, who didn't live near me, who had been telling me that for years too, but something finally clicked. And I just was like, you know what, I'm going to try again. And sometimes it's that sudden. It's like, all of a sudden, it's like, it is like a light switch. You're like, yeah, I'm, okay, I'm going to try. I'm gonna nice. Try. nice. What's the worst going to happen? You know, it doesn't work. Well, it hasn't worked for, you know, I haven't done anything anyway. So might as well try. So, yeah. And that, that, so there's the message, everyone listening. Just try, yeah. right? You just got to take try. a risk. Take a risk and put yourself out there. Okay, Laura, it's time for that parent footprint moment question. (laughs) Here we go. You ready? Here we go. Okay. Yep. Tell us about a time when you became aware of yourself as an individual or a parent, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your child. That's a great question, because I actually just wrote about this. And um, I grew up in a family that had lost a child. So I had a sister who died when I I was three Mm. and my sister was a few years older than me and she 
didn't live with us. I wrote a modern love piece about this um, for the New York Times. But I grew up in a family where something really sad had happened before I was around. And so it wasn't really, I never thought of it as being my loss personally. It was my parents' loss. Mm -hmm. And my sister, my older sister and I grew up in this environment where this thing had happened. And so it took many, many different forms when you grow up in a family like that. But when I met my husband, I realized that one of the things that I had grown up with, without, which I hadn't even realized at the time, was that my parents were never able to say to me, just in the most basic way, everything's going to work out. Like if I hmm. couldn't find my keys or if I lost my wallet, they would never be like, oh, you'll be fine. You'll find it. Or even if you lose it, you'll get another one. They were never able to say things are going to work out or things are going to be okay because they hadn't worked out and they hadn't been okay for my parents. They had lost a child, right? Mm -hmm. They didn't believe in the just the most basic, you know, benign phrasings of those kinds of things. They just didn't. So I never had that kind of optimism. I didn't grow up with it at all. Mm -hmm. And when I met my husband, my husband had a very difficult childhood, a lot of trauma, and yet he is this incredibly optimistic person. So since I met him, he's been saying things are going to work out. Things Mm -hmm. are going to work. It's going to be okay. And it finally embedded in me when I started to see that my son was just hungry for that kind of encouragement. And I learned how I sort of internalized my husband's message finally, Mm -hmm. and now I really believe it. And so now I'm able, and I think it was really in his teenage, my son's teenage years that I was able to really understand what I had missed growing up. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to also be the kind of parent that my husband was being to our son, he could encourage him. And then my, my son started to actually ask me for the pep talk. So I thought it was kind of, <laughs> it finally succeeded. You arrived. But it was really something I had to learn. Yes. Yes. Wow. And that whole, so that whole notion that we, like, we don't know what we didn't have unless we are yes. exposed to it later. Yes. Yes, I had no idea that other people's parents would occasionally encourage them. And my parents were really nice people, but they just couldn't, they were just super negative. I mean, because they just, they had no hope that anything would turn out well, given their experience. And so I didn't, I just thought, oh, that's life. Like, it's hopeless. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So the power of hope and it's going to be okay, that gives ourselves and our kids a security that it's going to be okay. Yes. Yeah. 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 Thank you huge. for sharing. Yeah. Thank you for sharing this and and you think of you sharing yourself. I mean not only today but sharing yourself in your writing because um just want to reflect back to you again how much it helps other people step out, take chances, uh have the courage to heal um just by Great. you having the courage to do so yourself. Thank you. That means a lot. I'm I'm glad. I'm glad it's helpful. It's been so great to talk to you. So, everyone check out Laura's new novel, Separation Anxiety. And Laura, tell everyone where they can follow you and your writings and your projects. Yeah, sure. I am. Uh, I have a website, Um, I'm on Twitter at Laura Zygman, Facebook, same, and um, Instagram, Laura Zygman, just basically my name. So, I'm out there posting. And you're going to keep writing. Right. Yes. 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 <laughs> she's she's back. Okay. Big time. Yes. Big I, time. So, yes. Yes. 
Okay, everyone, thanks for listening to the show. This was inspirational in reminding all of us that life is a process. We are all developing no matter how old we are. Life is going to throw challenges at us. And it is our job to take those on, not only for ourselves and to have compassion for ourselves, but also for our kids to see how we handle life so they can do the same, particularly when the inevitable curveballs and stressors come their way again. And that means that we need to work on being the person we want our child to become. Check us out. You know where to find us, www.parentfootprint.com. Tell everyone you know about this podcast so they can join our mission. And as always, ask yourself the guiding question, what footprint... Do you want to leave?